This episode of Microneedling University is sponsored by Medical Education Resources, LLC, providing education and resources to aesthetic clinicians on micro devices. Microneedling University invites you to join us on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Microneedling University provides clinicians comprehensive training on micro device research, equipment, protocols, and indications using evidence based research. Master esthetician Kristen Group and Dr. Larry Group use their years of microneedling experience to review, evaluate, and summarize the trends, treatments, and technologies in microneedling. And now, your hosts, Kristen and Dr. Larry Group. Hi there, I'm Kristen Group with Evidence-Based Esthetician and this is... Dr. Larry Group from Evidence-Based Esthetician. Hi. <laughs> what we are going to be talking about today is um, how do microneedling devices actually work. And Dr. Group wrote a very long dissertation on... There's only 13 pages on 13 Facebook? Pages what? On our Facebook group, um, which is Evidence-Based Esthetician. And when I got done reading it, um, although I thought it was quite brilliant, I also went, um, hi, I didn't go to that doctor school. Um, you didn't get that doctor learning, did <laughs> I didn't get that doctor you? learning. Can we actually have a conversation about what you're talking about in this, um, this article that you wrote? Because it was a little bit difficult, I think, to disseminate um, the information. So, um, and I had a couple of other people send me um, some responses saying, hey, you know, that looks really great, but um, can you break it down a little bit farther? So that's what we're going to do today is we're going to take that information and we're going to break it down a little farther. Um, as you know, in evidence-based institution, we're not going to be promoting anybody's device, including anything that we may have an interest in. Um, but there's a lot of words being thrown out there, and unless you know, maybe you also became an engineer, you might not understand the words like torque and RPM. And that was torque, not torque. I like torque. Uh, <laughs> you can torque while torquing. Um, RPM and resistance and all of these things, because people call me up and they ask me questions, and they're like, "Well, what is how much RPM and what's the torque on that?" And I know exactly what reps they're talking to. Yeah, didn't Miley Cyrus make one? It was like. What was the twerk? I I, I don't know. Micro Miley size microneedling Moving along. Um, so the point is, get it? <laughs> the point. The point. Um, the point is, we want to truly understand. If you if you have questions and people are asking you, you know, or, or selling you features and benefits of a device, we want you to understand what actually is a feature and benefit, what's fact, what's fiction, what's just straight out sales. So we're going to go through that information and talk about it um, and, and use our, our, our language, our, our big words and our small words to try to understand a little bit better. So with that, Dr. Group. So if you're going to buy a microneedling device, what would be good features, what would be helpful features, and what features would sort of just sort of be hype or not useful to you? Um, these things ain't cheap. So when you want to go buy one, you want to make sure that when the salesperson is telling you something that it actually affects you or has any, makes any difference or if it actually is a truly a benefit or a feature that you could use versus just something that sounds really good on paper. One of the things I hear or am asked about all the time is 
how much torque does your device have or how much power does this have or what's the RPM rate or things like that. The hard part about that is it's sort of asking uh, someone about like what's the best part of this recipe? Is it the chocolate chips to make chocolate chip cookies? Well, there's lots of ingredients that make the cookies what they are. Um, hopefully none of them are secret, at least with Micronix, so you can know what they are. But all of these things work together in a system. It isn't one over the other. And these terms for measurement, things like torque and RPMs and things like that, really sort of have to be looked at as how does it actually work when the needles go in the skin and come back out as opposed to these raw measurements that sound really good. Like if I said to you, my Iva, you know, a Ford Fiesta and it's got 8,000 RPMs. I don't know, is that good or bad? It's got 32 no miles per gallon. Well, how fast is it? Well, it goes 32 miles per gallon. So those, those are all great sounding numbers. They don't always answer the question. But the real question when you go to buy a car is does the car turn on? Does it go fast enough when you need it to? Does it not stall out on the freeway? Could you actually pass a horse and buggy if you needed to? Those types of things. Those are, should be some of the same questions that we talk about when we're looking at microneedling devices. Not whether or not we can pass a horse or buggy, but if I turn the microneedling device on and I use it for, say, scarry vision, is it going to get stuck in the skin? Does it have enough power to actually enter it and go out of the skin so that when it's done, it looks like I either did something or I didn't do too much? Does it have the ability to dial back? How long does the battery last when I use it as opposed to some number? It's kind of like buying a laptop computer. I bought one the other day and it said it had like a battery life of 12 hours. I turned it on and it lasted about seven. I think, who's measuring that 12 hour battery life? Well, it's the same thing with microneedling devices. I guess if you turn the thing on and left it go, how long will it run? Well, who runs it like that, right? You have well, patients coming in, you turn it off, you turn it on. How long does it take to recharge it? Things that actually affect the patients coming in and out is more important to me than some arbitrary number. I think one of the other things, and you just mentioned it, is um, it, and we've, by the way, we've tested pretty much every device that we could get our hands on, which is pretty much every device, and we have left them running to see how long. The difference is, is when it's running and it's not meeting any resistance, of course it's going to run longer because it's not having any resistance put on that battery and that motor. So sometimes when people, you know, ask me questions regarding microneedling devices, they're asking me and I tell them it's, it's almost, it's like, I don't want to say it's a fake question, but it's kind of a loaded question because when you have a battery running but you don't have any resistance, it's going to last longer, like a 12-hour you know, battery on your computer, if you're watching movies or you're downloading a lot of stuff right. or you're uploading a lot of stuff, that battery life isn't going to last as long as if it's just sitting there open. So when we talk about all of these different things, it's kind of like a, a concert of, of different things that come together. You don't hear the horn section all the time, you don't hear the percussion, but it's all of them that come together that give you the clinical endpoint you should be looking for in microneedling and in any of our classes we talk about it's not so much the number on the dial it's what does the skin look like when we're done with it and it doesn't match what we want it to look like but in order to get to that point where we're actually doing a treatment we have to understand a little bit more about the devices and the cartridges and the things that we're using to get to that clinical endpoint. Yeah let's dive into this and start to get a sort of a place to start with I think the easiest way to understand this, instead of talking numbers and figures and in terms is, 
what happens when the needles go into the skin? Let's start at that spot right there, right when the micro needles enter the skin, and then we'll work ourselves backwards into the cartridge and the device and all the other things. So in microneedling, basically what happens with an automatic microneedling device, not so much a roller, but a, like a motorized one, is we have some sort of motor that's pushing these needles in and out of the skin. And so the needles are gonna touch the skin and they'll either enter and penetrate the skin or they will not. If the device is moving faster than the needles can keep up, you'll get snagging or you'll get bouncing, things like that. So let's start right at the micro needle themselves, the actual micro needle, not the cartridge, but each one of these little needles, in this case there's 11 on this one, each one of these, what sort of things affect that and how when you design a system do you keep those things in mind and what things really affect us as far as being a practitioner that we can either control or at least want to know about. So when a microneedle or microneedle array, and I say array is the multiple microneedles together on a little platform, it, so they're like sort of stuck like that. That's the array of and individual microneedles. And then array, R-A-Y. Yeah, A-R-R-A-Y. So basically, when they go to enter the skin, the skin's going to offer some sort of resistance. It's not like water where it can just go in. There's the skin, whether it be scarred up skin or soft baby skin, or depending on skin that's over the forehead versus skin on the cheek, there's some resistance there. So the microneedles themselves are going to have to enter the skin, penetrate it, and then they're going to need to get pulled back out of the skin and then do that again over and over again. So what do we look at? What things make a difference? Well, first thing we want to talk about is the diameter or how wide that the cylinder of the microneedle itself is. So imagine if you took a microneedle and you blew it up so it was like a tent spike that you're going to use to, to start your, uh, to go camping and, and make your tent go into the ground. It'd be a, a, a pointy, sharp nail looking thing, right? So you'd have the, the sharp end that goes towards the skin, then you'd have the, I won't call it the dull end, but the thicker shaft end that goes towards the array. And depending on how pointy that is, or how sharp that tip is, is how easily it goes into, into the skin. Sort of like if you had a sharp knife or a dull knife. The sharper the knife, the easier it can cut through and, and go, enter the skin. So for micro needles themselves on each array, they're going to have its sharp end, but also the shaft of how wide that shaft is. A tiny little one with a tiny point will have less resistance because it's smaller. It makes a smaller hole, so it makes a smaller path going in and coming back out. Also the arrangement of the needles. So if you have needles really, really close together, uh, let's say that in an array that there's very little space between the needles, sometimes those needles are so close together, the skin between them can kind of stick between the two shafts. So depending how, how far apart the needles are, that makes a difference. That's the pattern of the microneedles. Um, when we're talking about diameter, the greater the diameter, the greater the resistance. So there's more surface area of the microneedle coming in contact as it penetrates. Now think about it. When the microneedle first penetrates, it's got its sharp point to help it get through. But once it's in there, it has to back back out again. Now there isn't a sharp point. So it now has to have more force to get the microneedle back out than it was necessary to get the force pushing it in there. You ever carve pumpkins and you put the knife into the pumpkin and, and you first get in there, it's pretty easy to put in there, and then you try to pull the thing out to, to make the little pumpkin eye, it's harder. It's, it's so easier scary to, too. It is scary. <laughs> it's, it's easier to push it in but harder to pull out. That's because the point helps ease the resistance going in, but then we have resistance pulling it back out again. Well, these microneedle and these microneedle cartridges have the same issue. Going into the skin isn't so much the issue as it is pulling it back out. 
What makes microneedling devices so much different than micro rollers or other tools or devices like say a, a reciprocal saw. When we're sawing something, we actually use our arm to push the saw one way and then pull the saw back. But microneedling devices don't work like that. What happens is the motor will push the microneedles into the skin. But this little microneedle cartridge, even though the cartridge body is attached to the microneedling motor device, the actual rod of the cartridge that holds the microneedles in place and the motor rod aren't connected to each other fixed. There's, they're not a definite connection. Depending on which de device design you're looking at has how much of a connection there is. So what happens is, is the motor rod can push the microneedle in but it's the spring that's in the microneedle cartridge that pulls it right back out again. So the motor's doing the work of pushing it in, but the spring of the cartridge doing the work to pull the needles out. And as we talked about, it takes more force to pull the needles out than it does to push them in. Now, the more times that you run a particular cartridge is every time those microneedles go in, they dull a tiny bit. So if you were to run a cartridge for a long period of time, those needles would get more dull and more dull to the point where they'd have more and more of a harder time getting into the skin. That's why you'll notice if you use a particular microneedling cartridge on a scarred up area for a long period of time, say it was a very large area, as it gets towards the end of the treatment, um, it starts to snag more. Mm -hmm. That's because those cartridge needles that are on the end of it aren't as sharp as they were before. And you start to get more petechia also in the area because it's not as sharp. Now, other thing is a lot of people like to talk about RPMs, right? Revolutions per minute or cycles per minute. Um, there's some crazy figures that are being uh, put out there by certain microneedling companies that are saying things like 8,000 or 10,000 revolutions per minute. Okay, that's meaning that every minute it's going into the skin 8,000 times. Does anyone really think that happens? Like, you know how like a hummingbird wings or bee wings buzz? That might be possible with that. But these are moving, but those are figures that aren't under any load. That's before this, it's coming. That's just the, the microneedle moving with not touching the skin. When we actually start to put the microneedling device against the skin, we get much less than that. So the important thing to me as a clinician is not how many rates or how many cycles per second, but what, how long does it take for me when I'm doing a treatment to have the skin look like I want it to look when I think that the treatment's done or the clinical endpoint. If I want there to be pinpoint bleeding, how many passes and how long does it take for that to happen at a certain depth? If it's moving slower, it will happen slower. If it's moving faster, it will happen faster. But one thing Chris can, and I can talk about is, is that the amount of time it takes to get through a treatment is never the issue. I always have plenty of time. In fact, I'm usually coming up with things to do. Why? Because if you book someone out for a half an hour to 45 minutes and you're going to charge them, say, $300 for an hour session, once you get good at this and understand your patterns, you can probably do this treatment in 10 minutes if you went straight through it. People have an, a, a, an aversion to paying someone $300 for 10 minutes of work. So it's not that we're artificially slowing it down. We do other things and we have other steps in our protocol. But what's important is, is that the limiting factor to make a microneedling work for us or not work for us in a clinical environment with clients isn't how fast it moves. That's the least of our worries. Even if it was working at 1,000 RPMs per minute or 500, that would be plenty fast to get to a clinical endpoint. What's your thoughts on that? Well, um, time is valuable and we all want to get through 
as many clients as we can, but time is valuable to them also. And if I'm charging somebody and I, my prices do start at $300, I feel that I want to make sure that I'm taking all the care that I need with them to make sure they feel like they're having a good value, but also a good treatment. So I, in my own practice, I've never been one to overrush any treatment, whether it's with one of my lasers or it's with microneedling. What I find is the longest time is the prep work of if you're going to do any topical numbing, if they don't come in numbed up, um, if you're doing your paperwork properly, all of those kind of things are what takes up most of the time. The actual procedure isn't what takes up the most part of your time. And even when um, I was talking with the doc and, and he was talking about, well, this person said they can do this area in under you know two seconds. Does it really matter? If, if it was I, five, if I, five seconds, five seconds is, is that going to is that going to tell your client? Well, I'm going to go to this person because they can do it in two seconds. No. So, I talk to people and I, and I talk to docs and and estheticians of what is a clinical endpoint? What should it look like? Whether that means that you do an extra pass on the upper lip to get to that clinical endpoint that you want. That's that's we're talking about a face. This is not a huge body area. Um, so it really taking a couple of extra seconds and, and quite frankly, when, when people throw things at me like RPM and, and revolutions per minute, and I'm kind of, if I'm being honest, I have no clue what they're talking about anyways. Well, it um, shouldn't matter to you. What really matters is when you use a particular device, how fast and how much effort and time does it take to get to the clinical endpoint? And honestly, every single microneedling device from about 2013 on has enough RPMs, power, what you what you call it, what you will, to get that done. So that's never an issue between devices. Doesn't matter which one you buy. It, what really we're going to talk about is some of the other factors, and RPMs is not one of them that you really should care about. What you should care about is how efficient is the machine? Does it snag? Does it grab? Does it actually poke the skin? What does the skin look like? Is it all cut up, or does it make nice clean? microchannel. Well, one thing I would say though, there are some devices out there that are super, super cheap um, that aren't going to microneedle anything. You're not going to have any penetration that's just going to bounce off the skin. Yeah, most of them's never made it. You know, they so got we're talking about the, the, the bigger manufacturers right. yeah, we're talking, that are out there. That are FDA registered. A lot of the ones that you can go buy on eBay, if they're even still being sold, because you know, the market kind of takes care of itself. A lot of those devices came out several years ago when people bought them, they didn't work at all except tear up the skin. They, they stopped being sold. So maybe you can still buy one out there for 300 bucks, but you get what you pay for on this thing. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit more about microneedles themselves, the actual needle on the cartridge. One of the things that we need to talk about is how far it penetrates the skin has a lot to do with how much resistance. So uh, it's kind of like putting your foot in, in like quicksand or mud. If you ever put your foot in mud, if you just put your heel in there just a little bit of the way, you can usually put your foot out. But if you happen to fall and your whole foot goes in there, it's that much harder. No matter how the farther your foot goes into the mud, the harder it is to pull back out again. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with microneedles. What we seem to find is right around two millimeters is where most microneedling devices start to either uh, be able to keep up with that or start to snag. So what a lot of companies have done, uh, three of the major manufacturers have done is just shorten their microneedle length to 2.0 millimeters. Now there's other devices out there that go to, some of them even go to three millimeters, but the average is about 2.5 for these other manufacturers. But that difference between two and 2.5 is significant to the microneedle. Once it seems to get past that, we start to get that resistance. And the more microneedles that we have on the array, 
means that much many more that are going into the skin. You add up all the surface area of the resistance and that's why it's harder when you go deeper into the skin to get them back out. And if you use a microneedling cartridge with more needles on it, it's even harder to get out. So you'll have to have a motor that's working harder. Not faster, by the way, either, but more torque. And we're gonna talk about torque in, in another episode. But what we're really saying is, is that how much speed that the device has has nothing to do with what we really need to know about. We need to know how much power those, those microneedles are being driven into the skin and then how powerful the spring is, is to pop them back out, remember? Because the motor's only doing the work of pushing them, but the spring is doing the work of taking them back out. Yeah, that's something that people don't talk about in, in, in sales. I've never heard a salesperson say, well, our spring load is, is this, or our spring is this much of a strength because they don't think about it as one force is pushing it in, but then the spring is responsible for pulling it back out of the skin. And some of the cartridges out there with such weak springs, you can't pull it out. And then it ends up what we call snagging. Or if you try to move through the area, you'll notice that it just, it skips on the skin. It either won't penetrate or it'll snag. Now, one of the things that we need to talk about is, is that not every action is opposed by an equal and opposite reaction, right? The law of thermodynamics that we won't get into. But the point of this is, is that that spring isn't operating in a vacuum. The reason why a lot of microneedling manufacturers don't use a heavy spring is because, yes, the spring would be powerful enough to pull it back out of the skin, but the motor actually has to overcome the resistance of pushing the spring to compress it. So not only does it have to penetrate the skin, which has its own resistance, but it also has to overcome the resistance by that spring. So if the spring's gonna have enough power to pull it back, pull the microneedles out of the skin, it needs the equal amount of force to compress it. So a lot of these motors can't keep up with penetrating the skin and pushing a heavy spring. So what you get is you'll, you'll either get a very weak spring or you'll get a very powerful motor that either you can't run as, as cordless or has some issues with overheating. And, that, and that's what happened in, back in the earlier generations. The way to, to kind of work through that is, is when, instead of just sort of winging it, and I know that sounds crazy that they would build these devices that you're paying thousands of dollars for, uh, that they're not even really designed with components in mind. But the truth is, is you go to the factories and you look how these microneedling devices have evolved, there was no real planning. There was just reactions. What will happen is, is that we had a, a device that will, a cartridge that will leak fluids through it. So they just took out the metal springs and replaced those with a silicone spring. Now, in some cases that made it a little bit better, didn't leak quite as bad, but there's all different aspects now and all different physical characteristics and mechanical characteristics to a silicone spring that, uh, that affords it some problems. And one of the reasons why they've had to shorten the, the length of the microneedles is, is that they weren't able to overcome the amount of force that the spring would be necessary to go past 2.0. Short way to say that is, is that we had to shorten the microneedles because the spring was the limiting factor. The motor's plenty powerful to push microneedles that were over two millimeters into the skin. But by using this new silicone spring, we didn't have enough return force to pull it back out. So there's your limiting factors. Now the spring, which was designed to keep fluids out, but also isn't as efficient as some of the other springs. 
I think an important um, note to make also is a lot of uh, microneedling devices that are on the market weren't built for microneedling. They were built for permanent makeup. Right, or tattoo. Exactly, yeah. and tattooing. And when you're talking about the needles that were being used on that, you're talking about either a one needle or a three or a five. We weren't talking about 11 or 12 or 13 needles. So you had a much smaller needle array, which has less resistance on it. Right which is easier to push into the skin. And pull out. And pull back out of the skin. So yeah. once you change that into an array that now is bigger, then you have more resistance on the skin than you would when what, with what the original device was, was created for. And that's, that's an excellent point. These were adapted from permanent makeup and tattoo machines. They were never designed from the ground up to be what they were now being used for, which is microneedling. So let's shift from micro needles themselves to the cartridge now what makes one cartridge better than another well let's reserve the argument of fluids leaking through the cartridge to another episode let's just talk about the efficiency of the cartridge the way that it's built here's the things that i think matter does the cartridge actually stay on the device when you're using it or does it spring off or fly off or come unhooked there's a couple different ways that cartridges attach one set of devices one design has it so the cartridge screws into the device all the way so that you really can't pull it out without unscrewing it another set of devices has the cartridge which sort of spins on about a quarter of a turn to these two little spades on the end of it and what can happen in some cases is that that can come loose during treatment and go flying off I think you had a patient that actually stuck him in the head with one, which I, is not yeah, cool. I, I learned um, very quickly with that type of a cartridge. I put um, little goggles on my clients because I knew that if the needle cartridge were to come off, I didn't want them poking them in the eye. Um, and hopefully I was fast enough to grab it so I could reuse it because once it touches something else, then, yeah, I, then I had to get another one. Double your consumable um, cost yeah, on top but, of that. Um, it was it was a little bit um, it was a little bit more difficult to work with simply because I wasn't sure if it was going to stay on or not. Stay tuned for more of this episode of Microneedling University after these brief words from our sponsor. Skin Stylus, the world's first microneedling system that can be autoclave sterilized. Find out more about the unique advantages of this amazing device at skinstylus.com. Steritip, the world's first sterile applicator that takes the mess out of applying PRP and topicals during microneedling, laser, and other treatments. Steritip and Steritip Mini's patented technology saves time and product with a soft, non-absorbent, and sterile applicator. Watch the two-minute demonstration at steritip.info. And now, back to this episode of Microneedling University. So what goes on inside a cartridge that matters to us? Well, behind the scenes, the idea of what's going on with these cartridges is, is that there wasn't a lot of thought put into keeping liquids from flowing through the cartridge into the motor, okay? So instead what they tried to do is, is decrease the amount of internal friction of the parts. So these moving parts, the distance between them and the amount of friction that each part has against the other is just one more force that that motor has to overcome when it's trying to propel the needles into the skin. And it's that same force that the spring has to overcome is the internal friction of the parts between each other. You can imagine it if, if it was done in a pretty, in a, in a factory that didn't have great tolerances or great quality control, that if there was any little plastic burrs or extra pieces on there, that it would make the, the cartridge not move very smoothly that, that extra friction can sometimes overwhelm the motor to the point where either the device doesn't last as long 
or we get more of that skipping or bouncing across the skin. So this binding friction, the way that these motors are designed and they're pushing against it, if they hit it at the wrong angle, this binding friction where the parts bind up inside can actually get to the point where they, they really can't design these pieces to be liquid uh, flow through proof because we don't want anything close enough or designed that there's enough parts that that friction's enough that overwhelms that motor. So that's one of the reasons you, if you ask yourself, why can't they just design a cartridge that doesn't leak and at the same time works? And the problem is, is that if you design the cartridge in such a way to make them affordable, you have to use plastic parts in a, in a type of uh, manufacturing facility that doesn't have perfect tolerances and otherwise it would be very expensive. So the problem is if you make the cartridge design such that it has lots of internal parts to keep liquid from flowing through, you increase the binding or the, the internal friction to the point where it overwhelms the motor. Well that's what some companies have been dealing with <laughs> is trying to come up with better design using better factory equipment under better precision to make sure that we reduce the internal friction, but at the same time, we'll keep liquid from flowing through. Um, again, one of the ways that they've adapted to that is that some companies have chosen to use a silicone spring. Now, it does offer certain advantages over the metal spring in that it does provide some barrier. But Chris, as you can say, besides the fact that it doesn't work perfectly as keeping liquids out, it also has its own problem. Well, when that silicone spring fills up with product. Liquid. Liquid. Um, from what you're microneedling onto the skin, it actually then has more resistance and you get more snagging on the skin simply because now instead of just moving freely with nothing in it, it has to move against whatever is in it. So just like, you know, if you put your foot into water or you put your foot through air, it goes very quickly. But if you have anything like mud or you have anything else and you try to put your foot in and take it back out, it's gonna be pulling against it. So the spring does the same thing. Um, it doesn't have, um, it has something in the place where there used to be air. So yeah, now we lose it has, efficiency. Yeah, so it has now, to overcome the fluid resistance. It does. Now. And so then you end up with snagging and um, sometimes I would end up changing cartridges halfway through a treatment just to keep it from dragging on the skin. Now, when we, let's talk about this snagging idea, because again, when we talk about things that matter to the clinician, whether or not we use fancy words or not, what are the real things that bug us? Snagging is a fancy word. Well, snagging is awful fancy, <laughs> but that is one of the issues, the idea of, of the cartridges bouncing or snagging. When we talk about bouncing, what we're saying is that it seems like the cartridge is working, it's going into the skin, but really what's happening is the needles aren't penetrating, they're just bouncing over the top. Whereas snagging means that they're partially penetrating and then getting stuck in there just enough so that it feels like either the needle's getting stuck and doesn't move at all, or if the, or that you can't move the cartridge across the skin. Now, again, we mentioned earlier a couple different ways of dealing with that. Because we found that based on about this size of motor, and the motors are, are rel relatively equivalent to each other size-wise and, and uh, if you will, torque, power are different, but um, when we're dealing with a motor of this size that fits inside of one of these tubes, um, we found that about using the right, the certain diameter of needle, and these are around, we're going to call them 32 gauge, if you will, mm -hmm. 33 to 32 gauge, which has a lot to do with gauge means how the diameter, uh, the bigger the gauge, the smaller the diameter, so it's kind of backwards, like an 8 gauge needle is giant but a 32 gauge needle is actually small. So gauge is the opposite. The bigger the number in gauge, the smaller the diameter. 
um, for what we're saying in this particular case is, is that most of the microneedling devices being used right now and the cartridges that are used with them use around a 32 to 33 gauge needle, which is a certain diameter. These are not hypodermic needles that have a hole in them that actually inject things through them. These are solid, more like nails than they are needles, right? They're solid core. Nothing comes through them. They're not hypodermic. So if we have a certain diameter of needles and most of them using them in a certain pattern, what we're finding out is that around two millimeters, uh, that's when these particular motors start to have issues with the snagging and dragging. And what a lot of companies that I mentioned earlier have done is just limited the depth to 2.0 millimeters. Now, is there good or bad to that? Here's the truth, in my opinion, is that I can't think of that many times that I'm actually above 2.0 millimeters, really. I probably, less than 10% of the time, I'm actually that deep into the skin. But the few times that I am, I sort of want it to not snag. And that's my issue is if I'm doing scar revision into heavy scars, there are times that I need to go beyond 2.0 millimeters. So rather than be stuck with a device that only goes that deep, which again, if you're an esthetician who isn't doing any scar treatment, it will not matter to you. You will never notice snagging uh, because all of the cartridges can easily handle themselves at 1.25. But if you are going to go into the deeper areas of a stretch mark, a scar, things like that, where the skin has more resistance, um, then you're going to want, have the, the issue to deal with of that, that issue of 2.0, the snagging. So what do we do about that? Well, again, a lot of people think that turning the speed up will somehow decrease the snagging. It's actually the opposite. The faster that these needles are going, the more chance there is for snagging mm -hmm. because there's this idea of relationship between how powerful the needles are, being, needles are being pushed in versus how fast they are, the notion of torque and the notion of speed. So in this case, if we turn the speed up, we don't actually turn the power up, we just make the needles go faster, right? What we wish we could do instead of turning the speed up is actually turn the power up, which would be deliver more current, deliver more energy to the motor to make them actually push it harder. So like in a steam engine, in reality, when, when you're actually adding more fuel in there, in some cases, not only are you going faster, but you're delivering more power. But with these devices, in many cases, unless it's designed a certain way, turning the speed up doesn't deliver any more power. It just makes it go faster. Why is that? Going back to that idea that the motor can push the, the needles in, but it's the spring pulling them back out. So no matter how powerful the needles go in, we're still stuck with the amount of torque or power necessary for it to pull them back out again. So turning it up doesn't make the spring make it any more powerful or more efficient. What you need to, to do is design a microneedling device which actually didn't use a spring for that. It actually was hooked to it, sort of like a reciprocal saw, if you will, that there's a power stroke that pushes it in and the motor actually uses its own power to pull it back out, doesn't rely on a spring. We don't have those devices right now. So again, limiting factors to spring. What does that mean to us? Well, we're talking about snagging. So what we're saying is that if you're going to be in past 2.0 millimeters and you're going to be using a device that actually has needles that are longer than 2.0 millimeters, we have to come up with a way to make it not snag. 
couple different things you can do. Number one is your technique can change. Mm -hmm. This is what I teach. I don't care what device you use, but I think that if you get above a certain depth, and it's usually around two millimeters, just change your technique. That doesn't mean that some devices aren't more efficient or better than others, but what we're saying is, is you can make up for a lot of the snagging by instead of moving the device across the skin, you actually stamp the skin. And I think I'm going to have a little brief video that's going to pop up here showing a little example of me doing that. Mm -hmm. So if I get into my heavy scar area, instead of moving it across there, instead I will place it down and let, let those microneedles, instead of then trying to drag those across, I'll lift the pen up slightly and move it over and just do that again. And the stamping technique avoids a lot of the snagging because you're not forcing the pen to not only penetrate the skin, pull back out of the skin, and then at the same time move across the skin. You're removing the, the problem with moving across the skin and kind of giving the benefit to that motor to let it just concentrate on poking the skin and coming back out again. Well, I think also in, in using that stamping technique, um, you're not going to get, when, when you try to move faster across a scar and that scar tissue is very difficult to move through, it's like having a piece of steak and having the fat on the steak. When you draw the grizzly, you try to cut through the grizzly and you can't, but you get to the steak meat and it just cuts right yeah, through. Yeah, it's so a totally steak different meat, experience. Yeah, the steak meat would be like healthy tissue and the grizzle part would be the scar. If you try to move the knife through the grizzle, it's gonna be much harder to cut through. So to compensate for that and to get those microchannels through that tissue, if you just, what I call it, give it a little love, which means hold the device down on it. And I probably hold it down for like one second, so I count to myself, um, I love you so much. I love you so much. Or if you don't love the person so much, you can possibly say, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And I'm saying that in my head. Sometimes I'm saying it outside my head, but sometimes it's just inside my head. My head. Um, it allows those microchannels to be created into that scar without getting stuck in the scar. So what I always do if I'm working on a scar, and, and because we're working on scars in different areas, I might be doing a crosshatch over uh, the lower part of the face. And then when I go back into scars, just as I call it, giving it more love or just stamping on it is something that will help alleviate the snagging that can happen from going at a greater depth. Um, so it's, it's nothing more. And I mean, again, you could use any device to do this technique. This technique isn't like something we just said you can only use with our device. Um, you can use it with any device, but it will help you get through that scar tissue which is a much more difficult tissue to get through because it's a scar. <laughs> exactly. So let's kind of recap what we talked about. We went into a little bit of detail about how things work. What we're talking about that matters to us is what are the things that actually affect what we do as clinicians as opposed to numbers and statistics from a machine. So the only way you're gonna know that is to use the machine yourself. Do a demonstration with it in your hands. That's the most important thing. Having someone quote you numbers isn't going to help you at all, right? Does it work in your hands and does it work with your patients, right? That'd be the number one thing I would advise. So what things are you looking for when you're doing this? So let's talk about the physical characteristics. We're going to talk about safety concerns in another video, but what we're going to talk about when you're looking at things, what are we looking for? If someone says, hold this cartridge up to this, which one's better, right? Well, the first thing you'd want to look at is 
what's the depth of penetration that allowed by that particular system, right? If you really are a person that's doing a lot of work with scarry vision or, or need to get to that depth you know, stretch marks, you're going to want to consider, do you want to be limited by 2.0 or do you want to be able to go to 2.5? Again, there's many cases that you'd be just perfectly suited to use a 2.0 device without any issue at all, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the questions you have to ask yourself. The next question is if you have decided that you need to be past 2.0, then the next thing you're going to say is, well, what sort of system do I want? There are systems that are only corded, and then there are systems that are cordless. And there's lots of squawk between one company and another, whether or not one's better than the other. We have our particular system that we're using right now allows us to do both. And there are other systems out there allowing you to do both corded and cordless. <clears throat> what it comes down to is the way that the systems are designed now, maybe in the future they won't be like this, but as a general rule, the cordless models tend to have decent power enough to do almost any treatment, except when you get into the very heavy scar tissue, the grizzle as you talk about. In some cases, not all models, but in some cases, having that corded mod module, that corded motor, allows you a little bit more power. I don't mean speed, I mean actual torque and power to push the needles in. But here's where it comes down to. If the needle cartridge that you're using is relying on a certain type of spring, it doesn't matter how powerful the motor is, guys, because it's gonna be the spring that's gonna be the issue. So how do you tell? Do a demo with the system, right? And get yourself someone that you can work on if you're going to be doing scar revision that you test it out using it in scar revision, turning it up to 2.5, hopefully having the person anesthetized, numb, right? And then go over and how does it operate in your hand? Try stamping, try moving in the cross and get some, some notions of that. When you're comparing systems, you actually have to compare the systems, right? When you go to, say, the Chevy dealer, do you take their word for it that the Chevy's better than the Ford? Well, maybe you do and you just buy one, but I think the smart shopper who's gonna spend some money at least probably goes and drives both cars to make a decision whether or not what works for them because some people love a Chevy for some features and some people love a Ford. It's gonna be the same with microneedling devices. There's a, leaving things like safety features out, which some devices have and some do not. That's like looking at the five-star crash rating. That's one thing you look for in a car, right? But there's other things you look for. So let's talk about crash ratings or, or safety features in another video, but we're talking about power right now and the ability for the microneedles to actually get into heavy tissue past 2.0 millimeters without snagging. You're gonna want to test both machines or three or five machines, right? You're not gonna take people's word for it. Our RPMs are 8,000, theirs are 6,000. Don't even have to bother trying it. RPMs are just part of the equation. We talked about all the other things, how many microneedles there are, the strength of the spring, the design of the motor, whether or not there's an actuator or not, all these other things that doesn't matter right now to focus on each one. What matters to you is, is try the system out and ask the question, why is it doing this? Why is it not doing this? And hopefully you'll get some feedback as to, well, the reason why we're not snagging at all is because we have a motor that allows us to do that. Then you say, well, aren't you at 2.0 millimeters? Well, yes. Does your device go to 2.5? Well, no. Well, the question or the answer in your head should be, well, pretty much all devices do pretty good at 2.0. So now we're, if we're a person who needs it to go to 2.5, that's when we need to make sure we try that feature out. And I would say lastly is, is that when you're starting to do your homework and comparing these things, 
go ahead and get the statistics and compare them. But really the important thing is to try it on a client or two clients and then get a sense of what things work and what things don't work. I, I like to make this, this statement, and it sounds sort of trite after I make it a hundred times, but the important thing is, is if, if you handed someone who was not trained in brain surgery a scalpel and someone else who got the latest state-of-the-art scalpel that was 10 times better, it wouldn't matter to them, right? Because they have no idea what they're doing with it. It's sort of the same thing with anything. Imagine if someone who did not go to a aesthetic school uh, suddenly decided they were going to do their own mid-depth peel. The results would be sort of scary, right? They're just sort of guessing at it. It's the same with microneedling. A lot of what accounts for good results and making sure that bad things don't happen and also patients are happy has not so much to do with how good the motor of the device or even how the device works, but whether or not the knowledge of the clinician of when to properly apply it, the care, skill, and judgment. So my point would be that the devices are important, but the company and the education and the amount of support you have to make sure that practitioners are actually guiding how this device is being used, as opposed to salespeople who have never used this on a patient. Imagine buying a car from someone who's never driven a car. They can tell you all the things that, that makes a car sound good from the books and flyers and videos, but if they actually haven't driven it themselves, when you ask them, how does it corner? How does it handle? How does it break? They're just going to basically say what the book says it does, but they've never done it themselves. It's sort of the same thing with microneedling. I think when you're dealing with this, you're going to want to talk with people who actually have used that system or at least a system that you're comparing to to get a sense of whether or not it will work for you, and then you have to try it. You can't just listen to what someone who's never used one of these with patients has to say. It's not valid. It's like asking someone who's never been to the moon, what's the surface of the moon like? I don't know. We can all look through the telescope and watch and look at the images that the Hubble uh, telescope makes, but unless we've actually walked on the moon, you really can't tell what it's like. What are your thoughts on that? Well, when I've, I approached microneedling much like I approached my lasers, and when I talk to people about devices and what's going to work in their practice, it's also much like lasers. If I'm going to talk to somebody about lasers, I'm going to ask them, first of all, what are your patient demographic? Okay. Who's coming to see you right now? Who's in a 10 mile or 15 mile or five mile, depending on how saturated your area is? Who's coming to see you? And then what are the procedures you want to do? Okay, we pretty much know. I know that um, on my patient base, um, I'm about 95% age management. Maybe about 5% of that could be scar revision. Um, if it is scar revision, it's usually like acne scars and things like that. That's what my patient demographic is. So you first want to know that because then that's going to tell you whether you're going to be more superficial or you're going to be working more with scars. Why, why, let me interrupt you for that. That's because based on the evidence and the research shows that it's not necessary to go into the dermis or to go deeply into the dermis to do age management. Correct. Um, if I'm working for a plastic surgeon though, and I'm going to be doing revisions on their tummy tucks or their breast dog scars, then that's going to be a very big factor because I'm going to be doing more scar revision. Sure, I'm going to be doing age management because every day we wake up, it's a gift. Every day we wake up, we age. But I'm going to be doing a lot more scar revision because I'm working in a plastic surgeon's office where hey, they're doing surgery, which means you're going to have a scar, which means somebody's going to have to do something to help revise it. So if you understand who you're going to be working on, that will help guide you to what type 
of device and then we get into all the other things and, and I always tell people it's like you have to do your own research you have to know who's coming to you and you have to know what you want to do with them when you understand that it makes it much easier to look at the different devices you might want to demo in your own practice yeah um as we wrap this up, what we're going to be doing here in the next couple of weeks is providing you an online or a uh, tool that we're going to post on the evidence-based estheticians uh, Facebook site. And it's basically going to be a questionnaire that you would ask a prospective microneedling salesperson. What things do you want to ask them? As like, what does it do? Does it do this? So you can check that off. Hopefully they have the answers to these things. And these are little tools that make it easier for you to focus on what actually matters to you instead of be overwhelmed by what sounds like a very well-polished sales presentation. Now, that's not to say that a lot of the things that, that salespeople are talking to you about aren't important, but our job here at Evidence-Based Esthetician is to get away from sales and hype and focus on, on the evidence and the things that actually matter. So we want to provide a guide for clinicians, regardless of what system you're looking at, what are the basic things you need to know about, about that particular system that matter to your practice. Some of the questions will be what Chris is saying. What are you doing in your practice? If you're doing a bunch of age management, in a lot of cases, it's not going to matter if the microneedling cartridges go above 2.0. But also think about this, what, about if, what if one manufacturer has a cartridge for sale at say $22 a cartridge and another one has it for $39 a cartridge? That's going to be a difference. So that might be a question you'd want to ask. How much are these cartridges per cartridge? Well, then I also think of um, the depth of the needles and, and what does your state regulation say? Oh, that's a huge deal. Um, can you get needles that are less than two millimeters? Can you get needles that are less than one millimeter? Can you get a 0.3, which is kind of like what they would consider more of a, um, an aesthetic or epidermal um, type of a needle? Can you get it at 0.3 millimeters? Yeah, these nano cartridges that are out there are right around that 0 0.2, 0 0.3 mark. And uh, we can talk about that on a different episode. But in many cases, if you work, as Chris says, if you work in a state where they're regulating it, uh, such that you cannot go past the epidermis, then this might be the way to go. Uh, there's other states, it doesn't matter what it is. Like I said, California is a good, good example. Um, unless you're going around the law, which there are some ways to do that, which we would never condone, um, estheticians can't even use microneedling devices. So it really matters that you find out what your state, we're not gonna tell you what, because it changes from day to day at this yeah. point. But contact your state licensing board. If you're an esthetician, obviously you're Oh, an aesthetics board, board cosmetology, cosmetology board, and get the great scoop on what it is. The other thing that's going to matter, we'll talk about in another episode, is even if you're allowed to do it, does your insurance cover you if you do that? So you might want to find those things out. So next, uh, on next episode or an upcoming episode, we're going to start talking about a little bit more about the inner workings of microneedling cartridges, some of the things that matter to you. We'll be focusing on springs, uh, clown heads, and squirt guns. <laughs> I think I've tried to use that as a way to kind of explain uh, the electrical part of how these systems work and some of the current and torque and all those different issues. And I have some neat diagrams and, and we'll spend a little time and try to simplify it down so that not only do you understand microneedling devices, but a little about the dynamics of how some of these other devices work in the skin. Ah, so we look forward to seeing you on our next episode. Again, we'd also love to be social with you. So if you go to our Facebook group, which is Evidence-Based Esthetician, and E is, or Esthetician is always spelled with an E, not an A-E, um, you can connect with us there. You can see more videos, more learning. Uh, it's just a great way to understand a little bit more about the skin 
that we are working on. Um, I'd like to thank you for watching. Again. Thanks so much for putting up with our silliness. <laughs> we enjoyed spending time with you, and we will dive into this again next uh, two weeks from now. Or so. Yep. All right. Thanks All right. for watching. Thanks. This concludes this episode of Microneedling University. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in for more exciting episodes. Medical Education Resources summarizes the latest research in micro device therapies and develops patient communication materials that allow clinicians to rapidly and effectively integrate micro devices into their practices. Find out more at medicaleducationresources.net. Microneedling University invites you to join us on our Instagram and Facebook pages.